This is Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money, where we talk about how you can make more money, keep more money, invest your money, and spend your money on the finer things in life, all from a Black Millennial perspective. I am your host, Joseph Oisu, and today I have Mr. Andy Ayim from the Angel Investing School. But before we get into any of that, you guys know what I'm going to say. It's time to like, subscribe, and share with everyone in your phone book. We're on every single platform, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everything in between. Click like, share, and leave a comment. Tell us what you think of the episodes we're doing. If you want us to share something specifically, leave it in a comment or head over to blackmillennialmoney.com and send us a question through the Q&A. Also, we have a Patreon page. If you haven't started supporting us on Patreon, now is the time to do it. We are leveling up this year. We're going to be delivering more and more content for you. And if you want to be part of the select group of people that gets access to that content first, now is the time. Head over to Patreon, join the movement, and help us grow. Now, on the show, he's been here before, but I'm going to give you the details of who we have. His name is Andy Ayim. Andy Ayim, he's a father to a three-year-old to a three-year-old daughter and a husband. He runs an, the Angel Investing School and has invested in startups such as Translate Culture, Trim It, and is a co-founder of the legendary music website and YouTube channel now, Mixtape Madness. In addition to that, he's been a product consultant advising major, major finance houses such as Investec, Novartis, and World First. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. He's talking to us about investing. He's talking to us about investing in startups because he knows it himself. He was at the helm of Backstage Capital here in the UK. Mr. Andy Ayim, thank you for joining us on the show today. I'm back and I'm proud to be back. And every time you do an intro, it makes me smile. So I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So you've been on the show before and things have changed a little bit. Previously, we used to do three things we should know about you, but you've been on the show. So we kind of know those things. If you want to know three things you should know about Andy, head back to episode 25, where he breaks down angel investing more specifically, but also you get to know him a little bit about. Today, we're going to be talking about the time he learned a financial lesson. So Andy, break it down for us. Share the story about you learning a financial lesson. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite fitting during this global pandemic that we're going in, I think there's a lot of different financial lessons that people are are gaining, right? Like there's some people suffering from actually like financial instability, while others are seeing great opportunity in the market at the moment as well. So I'm going to touch on actually a a lesson I learned during the last crisis when I was feeding my curiosity and getting started with investing into public stocks. And I started by investing into a mutual fund called the China Special Situations Fund. And I remember doing the research at the time to really learn about this figure called Anthony Bolton. You had a really successful fund prior to the China Special Situations Fund. I think it was actually called just the Special Situations Fund. And um, there's an incredible statistic around if you invested 1,000 at a particular year, it would have grown to about 100,000 if you kept it in and allowed it to just keep reinvesting itself over that long duration of time. And based on that track record, I invested in that China Special Situations Fund. And it was a great lesson in, in, in compounding because my money did nothing but get lost, okay? It didn't reduce to zero, but my money was going down. It was not growing and I didn't understand until I started researching and learning more about this concept called survivorship bias. And survivorship bias basically holds that, you know, just based on your past performance, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that's a good uh, predicator for future success. Right. So we shouldn't be making decisions that's that, you know, I should back this fund just because they previously ran a good fund. And I've seen that lesson time and time again with fund managers. Neil Woodford is another one who had a, a really good fund and actually then really flopped on his second fund. So, you know, people's personal incentives, teams, motives, the market, there's so many variables that change that are outside of your control when you invest into a public fund. So about five years after investing in that special situations fund, I actually learned how to do more of my research, learned more about fund managers, learned more about trends and principles around investing. And I backed another fund called Fundsmith. And the performance in Fundsmith over the last five to seven years actually like, tells a story in itself, growing annually at about 20% per year. Even actually in the pandemic, it's, it's still sustained really healthy double-digit growth. So that's a, 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 a story of two tells. Um, but it really taught me actually the, the value of, of compound interest um, and the value of actually just 
spending time in the market rather than trying to time the market, which is what I try to do with that first fund. That is a very, very useful story because there's so many things to pick out of that because it was number one, you, you just went with the flow. It was a good idea based on what this person had previously done. Did you take the time to research what they were going to do? Or was it just, oh yeah, he did this in the past and I'm going to follow? So funny enough, I got excited about the future of China, which has played out to be true. He just wasn't participating in that truth. <laughs> so you, and again, another nugget, you can be right, but not in the right position. Because for example, if you had been betting on China to be a massive coal producing country, right? it's true, but they don't export their coal. Their coal is all for them. But had you bet on them to grow massively in e-commerce and a global shipping and distribution, mm. that's where the win is. So you can be right, but also wrong if you pick the wrong side. So it is a really, really interesting tale in investing. And that idea of survivorship bias where you only hear, and you hear it with entrepreneurship and investing where it's only the heroes that you hear about. Right. For every Elon Musk, there's like 2 million other people who were just back at work or didn't even make it that far, Absolutely. right? But we only hear the hero stories. It's like, that's great. I can do exactly like that person. And that's not necessarily how it works out all the time. And looking at the context in which that person achieved that, like take, take the case of African billionaires. A lot, there's some really successful African billionaires who did their stuff legitimately. But the older generation, they just like bled the country dry but on, on the face of thing that person's successful and you had that with the robber barons in the u.s where they were just robbing the populace blind and getting rich but now we look at andrew carnegie and jp morgan as like, oh those were great people no they weren't but without the context without understanding what else is going on you can make bad investments and you can actually end up in a a position you didn't anticipate so that's a really really cool story Andy. and I'll, I'll even extend that further to say actually a lot of the valuable lessons are actually in failure in learning from those that failed to understand what did they do to fail and actually what lessons can you learn from that failure to reduce the risk of you doing the same mm. Mm. and in that i know we're just bouncing off each other but it's that just highlighted something else so with the successful people you need to look at the things that went right that weren't in their control and with the unsuccessful people, the things that went wrong that weren't in their control, because this is where you talk about luck and timing in a lot of ways, mm. because you can have a great idea, but if something out of your control wipes you out, it doesn't matter how good the idea was, but you could have a great idea. And if something out of your control takes out all of your competition, but not you, because you were either a little bit late to the party or just weren't that big. And we've seen it with like restaurants and stuff like that, where yeah, if you didn't have delivery in 2020, you out of the game. But if you were the one burger shop with delivery, it was your best year ever, even though mm. there were 22 burger shops that could have serviced it, but they were doing so well from the restaurant business that they didn't Absolutely. really bother with delivery. Absolutely. That's another thing that actually I learned about um, kind of like investing investing in things that you believe in and things that you can see or feel or experience yourself. During COVID, it was incredible to see how many people were ordering McDonald's still. Then when McDonald's opened again, it was incredible to see how long those drive-through lines are. That proof is undeniable, right? That is what I see and I can feel. And I feel like we see the same even with online brands, like everyone was talking about Boohoo's acquisition of Debenhams. You know, but like if I think about a lot of my family members who shop on ASOS literally monthly, if not every two weeks, it's undeniable that there's value there. So sometimes there's things right in front of our faces that are undeniable truths, but it's our ability to pay attention that, that really reveals whether that's an opportunity for us or not. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, some, you can miss it when everything is quote unquote normal, how big or successful a business is until they're the only one standing and they're crushing it. And it's too late sometimes, right? Indeed, indeed. So that's so that's the time you learn a financial lesson. And before we make the whole episode about that, let's get into <laughs> what we're here to talk about. <laughs> investing in startups. So in this first section, we're going to talk about the basics of investing in startups. And Andy, you're someone who knows this intimately. As I said, you were at the helm of Backstage Capital. And for those of you who don't know what Backstage Capital was, in fact, Andy, explain to people what Backstage Capital was just in a couple of sentences. Or so, is. So 
So Backstage Capital is a financial institution that we call a venture uh, capital institution. And its sole premise is to raise money from other people to invest that money into startups. But when you're a a VC, a venture capitalist, you always have a a bit of a thesis that guides the investments that you're going to make. And for Backstage Capital, their thesis was all around investing in underrepresented founders. So women, people of color and LGBT founders, they started off in the U.S., but it expanded to Europe. And that's when I was hired in as a managing director to help on that leg of the journey. And that also helped me invest in certain companies and to gain equity through doing that activity through Backstage Capital. Okay, perfect. And just to clarify, are there a couple of investments? And I mentioned a couple of them before, but are there a couple of investments that people may know that Backstage Capital took part in that you led or were involved in? Yeah, sure. So Afrocentrics, Trimit, Tambua Health, which is actually based out of Kenya, um, Geldem and Vite London. Okay, so the man knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. So to start off with, talking to individuals, not from the VC perspective, what kind of a financial position do you need to be in to start investing in startups? And I guess the key question is, how much money do you need to start with? Like, how much money do you think you need? So I've been actually thinking about this question recently because it's a conversation that we often have at the Angel Investing School. And I think the best thing to do is to start with the end in mind. Okay, so if we know that is a fact that 95 percent of new businesses fail after the first three years, regardless of their technology businesses or not. Okay, so that means there's a very high failure rate with new businesses that are starting out. So if you're investing money into them, there's a very high risk and probability that you're going to lose that money. So then portfolio theory dictates that the optimal size to make a return of, you know, 3x or more when investing into new businesses that we call startups is a portfolio of at least 15 to 25 startups. Okay. So if we say that we're trying to grow to have a portfolio over the next five to six years of 15 to 25 startups, and each of them startups are saying that they're taking a minimum investment of, let's say, £10,000. That means, actually, we need up to about 250000 a quarter of a million, to really invest and deploy over the next five years into these startups. Now, bear in mind, when you're investing in new businesses, they often go to get other funding rounds in the future to continue on growing. With each funding round that they get, there's something that occurs called dilution, where my equity ownership goes from 1% to 0.5% because other investors have bought into the round. So in order for me to maintain my 1% in the next round of funding, I have to put in more money. So now it's not only that 10,000 that I put in, I had to put in 2,000 more. And in that next round of funding, I had to put in 12,000 more. And in that next round of funding, I had to put in 30,000 more just to maintain my 1% so that eventually if that startup gets acquired, then I can make a return on the money that I've invested. Okay, that's a strategy that we call following your winners. So based on that, I've just explained that you need at least, let's say, 250K to build up that basic portfolio of 15 to 25 startups, let alone the money that you're going to need to follow on into those startups. Okay, and I'm not saying that to deter people, to scare people, but it's really important to start with the end in mind so you understand the path ahead and you understand what you're committing to. Okay, and that's that is very interesting because, again, it will sound like investing in startups isn't for the people listening to this podcast or not for everyone listening to this podcast but I guess if we wind it back a little bit how much did you did you have when you first when you started making your first investments in startups so I was earning definitely less than around 25k a year and looking back I was too overexposed into this asset class out of the passion that I had for new businesses okay so I invested between five to ten thousand at that time and that's a significant portion of what I was, I was earning, it was ludicrous. It's not advisable, okay? But I'm here being transparent and honest and vulnerable with you because hopefully you can learn from the mistakes that I made in the past. And that first investment actually was in an African engineering company that I touched on in the first episode that went bankrupt. So I actually lost that and it was a painful lesson. I had to make a decision as to whether I'm going to still commit to this path or to make a judgmental decision that, oh, because I lost that money, I'm never going to invest into new businesses again. And, and we know how that played out. Yeah, for sure. So you, you lost your initial money. You put 5000 to 10000 in it. Now, there are a couple of different ways for you to actually get 
invested in a startup and not all of them require you to actually part with your own money or with a large amount of money and my my personal favorite which is which is how people which is how regular people win is with the sweat with the sweat equity strategy talk to us about that sure so so there's two things that you just touched on one is like equity crowdfunding so these platforms such as cedars and crowdcube republic in the us that allow you to invest as little as 100 pounds into new businesses that are raising on their platforms so it's a great way for you to participate in learning about what it means to invest into startups not so great for the return profile unless you really understand the valuations of the platforms, which can over, be overinflated, which we touched on again in our first episode. And the second way when we talk about sweat equity is that often when you're, start, when you're joining a startup um, or a scale-up, a part of your remuneration package is that you're getting pay plus you're getting some option options. And when we talk about options within a startup, they say you're going to give you the option to have some equity as well. And usually this is equity that you can earn more and more given the years you're at the startup, especially if you're an early employee. The downside is, I said to you before that the majority of new businesses fail. So that startup may fail and that equity may not be worth as much as you think it is. So that's where you have to make that careful decision of what matters to you given your risk profile and your lifestyle at the time. Is it more pay or can you sacrifice some pay and take the risk and take on some equity? And that's a very personal decision to make. Another way is actually if you work for, for example, a venture capital institution like I did, a VC, because as part of that deal, you get some, some sweat equity, you know, as, as we say, we, we, they have another name for it, but you get some sweat e equity. And again, that allows you to get equity in the portfolio of startups that you're investing in alongside uh, uh, the rest of, of that VC. Um, and another kind of like route in, which um, I, I think we're going to touch on a little bit later maybe, but is... Um, angel syndicate groups. So these are groups of experienced angels. I'm part of an angel syndicate group called the Green Angel Syndicate that focuses on investing in climate change, which is a trend I believe is gonna continue for the next 10 plus years. And again, it allows me to invest as little as 2,000 to 5,000 to participate in deals alongside more experienced investors. So there's different ways to kind of lower the risk and lower your exposure while starting to build out a portfolio and growing into those bigger amounts in the future. Okay, so different ways to invest, different approaches to it. And something that I did want to highlight is that when you talk about working for startups and you mentioned scale-ups, um, a simple definition from my understanding of the two is a startup is something that's still sort of figuring it out and a scale-up is something that's about to grow and grow big. Mm -hmm. So a great example of that in recent times is Airbnb. So had you joined Airbnb three years ago, they weren't a small business. They had thousands of employees and were, and were working globally. Had you joined and had some equity options at that point and they went public late last year, late 2020, you would have made a sizable amount of money. So it's not necessarily that you have to risk it all and go and join someone who's working in their bedroom. But if you wanted to work for a reasonably well-known company, but is not listed on the stock market, there's an opportunity there for you. So companies like Slack was a good opportunity because it was a relatively established business already. Zoom, again, they're already listed, but the question is, can you get options and could, do you see them growing? So there's companies that are, that are good places to be if you want to get access to options. So that's a great way for you as, a, as someone who, does, who maybe doesn't fancy themselves as an investor or who doesn't want to part with 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 pounds to actually participate in equity ownership in growing businesses. And now, I want to add a word for our entrepreneurs out there as well, because there's a hidden lesson here as well, because when you join these companies, you can form relationships with people at these companies that could be your co-founders, that could be the talent that you hire, that could be your potential investors in the future. So there's so many auxiliary lessons and learnings and, and benefits of going into these environments and participating in this fast learning journey that they go on as they grow. Well, there you have it. Mr. Andy, I am again dropping gems. <laughs> um, so switching gears just a little bit here. So you're an investor who wants to invest and you want to invest more directly into a business. So you don't want to go with a crowdfunding. You want to do it either through an investing club, which 
like you spoke about, is a group of people that come and invest together, which allows you to not have to put quite so much money in as an individual. If you think of it almost like a lottery syndicate where a group of people put their money together to take an action, um, that's one route. And the other route is just to go solo, put your money in and learn your lessons quickly. Hopefully you made the right bets. My question off the back of that is, how do you make yourself attractive to a potential company? Because often all the best companies, all the best opportunities, you're not the first person or the last person to see it. How do investors or potential investors make themselves attractive to the companies they like to pursue? It's a great question. I think looking back, a lot of my early brand was built around the fact that I was just helpful and responsive. The fact that I was making myself available, speaking at events, facilitating workshops, coaching entrepreneurs one-on-one, joining entrepreneurs and being a a bit of a product manager to support them on their journey or business development coach. So really having skin in the game and being like available and supporting the community is number one, because that's going to lead to word of mouth, which is the most effective word of marketing, right? Founders are going to tell other founders about how helpful you are. And that is a good thing. That is the brand you want to build. You want to be getting really, really high quality deal flow startups coming to you start for investment because you're known as someone that is really a giver and a helper. So that's the number one thing that you can do. And you can start that today, even before you have the money. Okay. And really what you're leaning into when you're doing that is, is your experience. Like what is your skill set? My domain expertise was in management consulting and in product management. So I leaned on that. Okay, but then there's also all of these like foundational things that you think are basic, but are really useful. So the fact that I've uh, consulted with large corporates means I understand how corporates buy services from small companies. So I can help companies understand actually what the sales cycle is of selling into the corporate, what to expect, who's an influencer versus a decision maker versus a buyer. And all these nuances that you wouldn't know unless you've been inside of a large company. And then finally, it's about leveraging your network. All right, so there's something I might not know that I might actually introduce that founder to Joseph because I've got this extensive network that I nurture of people who are helpful, who will be willing to connect with founders for me because actually I actually have a good relationship with them. So these are all simple things that we can all do even before having that money to invest to really start intentionally building that reputation. thinking about that it's like it just makes sense it's the same with your reputation or how you make yourself attractive to other people because the easiest way to get a job is for a company to hear about you and come looking for you the easiest way to um to meet a partner or to or, or to make friends is to be out is to be available is to is is to be visible and when it comes to investing in startups if, people, if you are known as someone who helps startups, startups will come and find you. If you are known as someone who invests in startups, startups will come and seek you out. If you're part of the community and your name is constantly coming up, people start to think, okay, who is this person? And why, would it, and why is it a good idea that I know them? And, and then you see from- that second question so key because I get, I get introductions from investors and uh, a lot of the introductions I get a lot of the time are black founders. Okay, because that investor has associated me with really caring and investing in black founders because they know my portfolio. That's a win. If the first thing that's coming in that investor's head is, oh, this is a quality black founder. Oh, they need Andy on the cap table. That's great. Yeah. So once you become known for something, the opportunities just keep arriving. They keep, it's a, it's a really, really simple example, but the same thing. If, if you're known as the friend who always has money, don't be surprised if you're the friend that everyone calls if they need to borrow some, because that's now the reputation. That's now what you are known for. So Andy's known for investing in black businesses. So pretty much every black business in the UK at some point is going to hear Andy's name. And that only helps him see more opportunities. And talking about filing opportunities, we've it's clear that building up your brand, using your experience and reputation makes you attractive to an investor. But if, if, if you're going beyond finding opportunities that way from your reputation in your network, are there like websites, podcasts, social platforms that people should be aware of if they're just trying to get to know the industry and could actually start looking for opportunities that way? 
Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about personal brand, right? And the importance of kind of like being intentional and building that. But actually the next step above personal brand is really networks. So I mentioned that I'm part of the Green Angels Syndicate, but there's so many other community groups that I'm part of that I'm just giving, right? Whether it's YSYS, whether it's BYP Network, like there's so many other communities, Foundervine, that I'm one tech I'm part of and I'm just giving, right? I'm not charging entrepreneurs. I'm not charging founders. I'm just giving my time and, and providing advice where I can. 10 by 10 VC, right? All of these groups that I'm a part of help and it leads to what we call like a network effect, okay? So each feeds into each other. The other thing is like specifically for angel investing, there's a great membership website called the UKBAA and that stands for the UK Business Angels Association. That's the membership body in the UK for UK business angel groups. And they're great because if you sign up to their free newsletter, you get access to so many events and, and so many of the networks and uh, angel syndicates. They literally have a membership list on their website. So again, that can shortcut your learning loop because it allows you to connect directly into relevant events, directly into, uh, uh, into relevant networks. The other thing is you might want to become a mentor on an accelerator or incubator program. So there's so many out there. My friend runs one called Startup Discovery School. One Tech have a number of incubators and accelerators. I'm sure YSYS does as well and Foundervine. Like there's so many incubators and accelerators that you can actually lend your skills to, to become a mentor. And again, it gives you the opportunity to build your brand and start connecting with startups as well. Then, you know, one thing that I've been really um, intentional on in the last two years, I've kind of slowed down more this year, to be fair, is um, in really putting myself out there and controlling my narrative. So that first page of Google, when you Google my name, I've controlled and influenced that narrative. So the things that come up represent what I want you to know about me. If you click on the news tab, once you search that name, again, all of that press is intentional. It's the things that I've chosen to speak about. So you know when you Google Andy, you're going to be reading about product management, diversity, or investments, because that's the intersection that I choose to play in. Okay, so press is another one that I just touched on there, right? And being intentional with the type of press that you're featuring in and why, you know? And um, social media is another one, like just putting stuff out there. And I understand for the introverts among us, that might not be the way for you. So if, if, it, if that's true, I'd highly recommend you joining a group and helping to leverage and build a brand of that group because you need to use that brand influence or that network to really like pull in that, 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 that inf inbound deal flow. Again, I've said this before and I really like having Andy on because sometimes I just like to listen, but it's, it sticks to, it sticks to one of those principles that I think governs everything. If you want to do anything, you need to first step up. So even if you're an introvert, if you want to be in the world of investing in startups, you need to step up and be involved in that world. Absolutely. You need to somehow engage with that world. And then you need to make it public what you want to do. So it could literally be, hey, I would like to start investing. Can, has anyone got any ideas, anything that there's interest in? And you can tweet that. You could, you could just mention that on a Zoom call. Did you know what I love, Joseph? You've just mentioned that. And I know that half the listeners are going to undervalue that. You're absolutely right. Because five years ago, I wrote a blog and I said, my ambition in the next 10 years and in there, somewhere in there was an angel investing school, was investing into startups. I forgot I wrote the post. Someone sent it to me in my DMs and Instagram the other day. I put the intention out there publicly. And off the back of that, actually, I started my newsletter. Okay. I get so many startups approach me through just replying to my newsletter. That's become an asset for me now. And then now I've got the Angel Investing School, I've built a network myself. So I'm training 60 new professionals every year how to get started in angel investing. So as that network grows, the network effects can continue to compound over time as well. So what you just shared about just basically building in public is, is so undervalued, but so true. Yeah, yeah. And the final step of that, so you stepped up, you got involved in the community, you've made it public what your intention is to do. The final step is to actually go do the work because Andy, using your example, you completely forgot that you wrote that down, but you went and still did the work and fast forward, you have your own angel investing school. You've actually been investing through venture capital firms and, and personally. So that is the key those, that's the key process that governs everything that we do. You decide and you get involved. Then you speak about it publicly because to get, the only way to get help is if other people know. And then the final step is to go and do the work. Now, 
we have covered so much in this first half of the episode and I'm mindful that we could keep going, but there are other things we need to talk about. So just to wrap up this half of the episode, the kind of financial position you need to be in to invest in startups really, really varies. But at the core of it, you know, we talk about the three circles of wealth here and we're going to continue talking about the three circles of wealth here is for you to have your day-to-day finances in place. So if your bills are late, if you're forgetting to pay your phone bill, you're not ready to invest. Then your protection circle. So if you have no savings, so no emergency fund, no cash on hand, you haven't got your life insurance, you haven't got your pension all sorted, as in, I'm not saying your pension is completely full up and you don't need any more money, but you haven't got one set up, you're not ready to invest yet. Because if anything goes wrong, you have nothing to fall back on. Once you've got your day-to-day, your protections, now you're ready to start investing. And even before you start investing, you need to tier the level of investing you're looking at because investing in startup is a high-risk investment. As Andy said, 95% of startups, 95% of all businesses fail, period. Moving on from that, it's now more about what do you bring as an investor? What, why would someone care? Why would someone want you to be part of their business? Because essentially, most people's business is their baby. They've put so much time, sweat, and energy into building this thing. Why would they give you a piece? What about you makes you valuable? And it could be anything. In Andy's case, he had experience at big companies and knew how big companies buy stuff. You could be someone who works in administration and knows that their back-end the way in which that they communicate amongst their teams, the way in which that they pay their invoices needs to follow a certain procedure. And just being able to help that is massive with HR procedures. Maybe you worked in recruitment and these guys have no idea that they're breaking five different HR laws. Health and safety, they've got an office. They have no idea how to safely put cables in the wall. These are all the random bits of value that you can bring, maybe not from yourself, but also from the people you have access to. So I know, Andy, if I'm looking at um, investing in a startup, I will go to their startup and say, I could bring the likes of Andy Iam into the cap table, but I need 10%. <laughs> I could bring those people in. And it may not work, but it's a value proposition that you can bring. Now, after that, it's using those platforms to find opportunities, but then you can also get really, really tactical. Join communities, join, join networks, put it out there what you intend to do. Because without that public declaration, that public intention, take my word for it, nobody is looking for you to invest in their business. No one is sitting here thinking, you know what? Amanda from, from year eight would be a great investor. No one cares. No one is looking. It's the opportunity for you to put it out into the world and say, this is what I do. This is what I want to do and start engaging in that, in that, in that world. So people know about you to do it. So in the second half of this episode, we are going to be breaking down the steps you take to invest in startups. Cause now we've kind of covered the, the big how, but okay. Now you've found a potentially good investment. What next? How does, what's that process like? What do you need to do in order to, to succeed in that world? So Join us after the break and we'll break it down for you then. You may not know this, but we have a Patreon page. Patreon is a platform that makes it super easy for people to support creators. Here at Black Millennial Money, our mission is to reach millions of people around the world with life-changing financial information, and you can be part of that. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Black Millennial Money or click the link in the description to sign up and start supporting us today. We are back in this Invest Money episode of Black Millennial Money, and we are talking about investing in startups. In the first half, we kind of gave an overview of what it takes for you to become a startup investor. In this part, we're talking about the whole process of investing in startups. I have Andy Ayim on the show. He knows his stuff. He's been around the block a little bit. And my first question for you, Andy, is what's the process of investing in startups? Where does it really begin? So like from the very start to like the end where you've invested? Sure. So really, it starts with with research. Like, actually, like you need to remember this is a bilateral relationship. Like, does the startup want you to invest in them, especially if it's a competitive round? Right. And the the flip is true as well. Like, actually, why do you want to invest in them? Do you believe in their market? Do you believe in the trends in their market and that that's going to continue? Do you believe that they they are strong swimmers in strong tides and they're going to take advantage of those trends? Do you believe that they're a better existing alternative to their competitors and why? Do you, are, do you find yourself being value aligned? You know, like when people ask me, like, oh, what's the most important thing? What's the thing that you really focus on? 
is actually connecting with the people. Like, are they value aligned? Do I agree with the way they think, make decisions and handle the bad times and bad news, right? Do I think they're gonna be transparent and honest and open with me when they're going through hardship? Or are they one of those that are gonna just keep reporting that things are going swimmingly and well, <laughs> right? So these are the kind of things that you're looking for like in your first meeting when you're uh, researching and, and first meeting these startups, you know? And then you probably have like an initial meeting just to feed each other out, okay? Then you might have a follow-up meeting if you're really interested to ask deeper questions and maybe meet a co-founder or learn more about the technology and get a demonstration of it, right? Um, one of the things that I like to ask startups are like, like, what are all the reasons that you could fail? Like, are they actually aware of that of the risks that are in their way? And are they transparent and open and sharing that with you? Or are they just going to paint the happy path? Okay. Following that, you usually do uh, some sort of due diligence. And due diligence is really when you're doing deeper research, primary research into that startup. So startups will often give you access to what they call a data room, which is really actually just their cloud storage, you know, whether it's Google Drive or Dropbox. And there's a number of folders that they'll organize for you that give you things such as their financials or their letters of intent and their sales projections or their pitch deck, their marketing material. So through those documents, you can do more detailed due diligence and homework on the startups and what they do, okay? And then you get to a stage where you're like, I'm really interested. I actually want to invest 20,000 pounds into this deal. And you get what we call a term sheet, okay? And this term sheet is not a legally binding contract, but rather guidance on disagreement that you're going to have with this startup, okay? And usually that's the grounds for negotiation. You start negotiating actually what you do and what you don't want. And, you know, that sits aside uh, alongside a number of different legal documents from, you know, like the company's house uh, documentation, the articles of a memorandum, the shareholder agreements. So you're looking at all of the legals as a package and the term sheet is what you use to negotiate and go back on uh, back to the startup, right? And it include things such as the valuation and the equity and whatnot. Okay, okay. so that's the initial process. So it starts off with some research. First off, does the... Do they want to meet with you? Why do you want to meet with them? Then you probably have an initial meeting where that's just introductory, just trying to get a feel for the people. Are they the right kind of people that you will get along with? And then there's follow-up meetings where you meet the rest of the team or you get to know the product a little bit better or you meet maybe some of the other investors or some customers of theirs. And then it's time for your due diligence where you're like, okay, I def I'm pretty confident I want to invest in this, but I want some more information. So you dig into the financials, you look into their data as to how they're growing. Like, is all that glitters really gold? Then finally, you start the negotiation bit where you get a term sheet. And based on that, you draw up a contract as to what you're investing in, how much for, and this is where the lawyers and everyone else gets involved. Okay. So that's, that sounds like a straightforward process and it sounds like it could be either really quick or take ages depending yeah, on the especially on that negotiations part and if there's things that you're looking into due diligence that isn't adding up and you're waiting for that back and forth with the startup to iron things out um and part of that due diligence is understanding the, uh, the what we call the startups cap table capitalization table which really is a list of all of the investors that have invested to date and the investors that are looking to commit to this round of investment. So you can see the impact of dilution with that capitalization table that the startup should have ready to hand over to you to see. Okay. And again, this is, this is another metric of, are these the people I want to invest in? If they don't have this stuff close to hand or within a reasonable time of access. So if you ask for something and it takes them two weeks to come back to you, are they even ready for investment? Did, did they know what this process was going to be like? And I can, I can understand it taking maybe two or three days to come back to you on a very specific and technical thing. But if we're just asking for simple stuff and you don't have it, these are, these are some of the ways as an investor you could start weeding people out. So that's the process leading up to putting the money in. So let's say you're happy with everything and you've put some money in. What then happens after the investment? Do you just, like, what happens? Like you spent the money. <laughs> so uh really like once you've invested there's there's three things that you need to bear in mind like as an investor you're signing up to this partnership or this marriage and what you're saying is that i'm going to invest the capital which at a minimum is valuable right because they need the capital to build out their runway they give them the opportunity of experimenting and finding a business model that's scalable repeatable and that works right that's what you're signing up to giving them that runway to figure things out 
Okay. The second is that you're filling knowledge gaps, right? So actually, like, where are the gaps? Where are the things that you need help with? And how can I lend on my lean on my experience to help them fill those gaps? And the third thing is really connecting them to your network, right? And that's whether you connect them to people that help to fill those knowledge gaps, or you might connect them to investors that can help invest in this or future rounds if they're fundraising. Right, so those are the really key things that you're signing up to agree, agree, on, uh, agree on as an investor. You know, and every month or every quarter, you're going to get some sort of communication from the founders. You know, we call these investor update emails, and that should be sharing some highlights, some lowlights, and some asks. And those asks present an, an opportunity for you to go back and be responsive and helpful to those startups. And um, one caveat is that. You know, there are certain investors that choose to be armchair investors and there's positives and negatives of that. The positive is that for a, a startup, it means that it's less reporting, less admin, one less person to worry about because they're allowing you to just get on with it. Because you don't want people to be interrupting you and disturbing you to, a, to the degree that you're distracting them from running their business. Um, the, the negative with that is that's, that's one less person that you can lean on to help field on knowledge gaps or introduce you to their network. Okay, so the work doesn't stop when the investing, when the money is actually sent over, if you're an active investor. And to be fair, most of the people listening to this, I think would rather be active investors because we would have parted with a decent amount of money and we don't want to see someone waste it. So we want to make sure that they, we can help them to get to the place that they need to. Whereas if you want to be a passive investor, you, you just give the money and maybe you get an update once a year just to make sure it's all going fine. But that usually sits with the people who either have more than enough money to not necessarily miss this money if it doesn't come back, or maybe they're the friends and family who wanted to support you and that's okay. But the vast majority of people listening, I think are possibly going to fit into the active bucket. So when it comes to being an active investor, what type of things would you be excited to see from a startup when you're about to make that investment, what kind of things are interesting to you? And of course, this is a personal question, but actually it's got a lot of correlation in what I'm going to share, what you probably hear from other investors. Okay, so I'm going to touch on four things in particular. The first is the founding team, right? So I mentioned a little bit earlier how important it is to make sure that you're value aligned and that you believe in this team's ability to execute on their idea. Okay, because in the end of the day, the team is who you're invested in. And, you know, a large portion of the startups that fell, fell because that initial team quits, right? So you need to look into their relationship. Like, are they, how do they know each other? How do they come together? Have they had experiences in the path where they've overcome ambiguity, um, adversity together, right? Do they have the right skills and experience that fits into this market that they're trying to pursue, right? Do you leave the meetings with them feeling genuinely excited and curious, eager to see what they do next? There's a little part of you even feel like I wish I could even join this team if it was in another in, in, in another situation, right? So the founding team is optimally the, the most important thing. That's that's what you're investing in at this early stage. There's so many risks, so many unknowns, so much ambiguity. So the founding team is really key. Okay. The second thing is really their ability to sell, because what you're doing essentially is you're selling to investors, you're tailoring that story to sell as unique value proposition to customers. You're tailoring that story again to sell to potential partners. You're tailoring that story again to sell to potential employees. So that ability to sell is actually critical. And how well are these founders doing in, in their conversion along all of those different verticals that we just touched on? How well are they doing with hiring? How well are they doing with partnerships? How well are they doing with customer acquisition? How well are they doing with, the, with their fundraising? Because that ability, ability to sell makes all of the difference. Okay, the third thing I want to touch on is really leaning on my expertise as a product manager and it's the product and that, that product market fit. If they haven't got product market fit, are there clear indications that they're well on their way? A clear indication to me is that they have very high retention, so really loyal customers that come back time and time again and really low cost-effective customer acquisition costs, hopefully because a lot of, that, of, of those customers are coming through referrals and introductions rather than through paid advertising. Okay, and a part of that actually is looking at the product itself and understanding, is this a pleasurable experience in this product? Is it a great experience? We all have good experiences on other products like Instagram and TikTok and Gmail and, and calendars and whatnot. So we have a good benchmark for what a good experience is, regardless of 
business to business or it's business to consumer. You know, and then the final thing with product is actually understanding, is there any particular IP or defensible technology that differentiates them in the market and makes it harder to compete because it will take another company maybe months or years to develop competitive technology. So that's another thing you look for in terms of products, like how differentiated it is it to the market. And the final thing that I want to touch on is a point of contention for a lot of investors. And it's, in, it's ensuring that there's a large enough uh, target addressable market. Okay. And as an angel investor, the size of the market um, and the size of the opportunity differs to if you're a VC investor. Because in a VC is essentially raising other people's money, putting more money into deals and expecting more of a return in order to pay for all of the losses in their portfolio. So they often talk about this 10x return and billion dollar in, uh, companies, right? Whereas as an angel investor, you don't need that outcome. A lot of the companies that you're invested in are probably going to get what we call trade sales or acquisitions. They're going to get acquired for maybe 30 million or 50 or 150 million or 300 million. And that's a fantastic outcome for you, right? So some of the tension for a startup founder sometimes as you go through the founding rounds is when you're getting those opportunities to exit, actually like, do you decide with a VC who may say you're not ambitious enough and you need to continue building bigger because they're incentivized to say that because they need that 10X exit? Or do you decide with the angel investor and saying, actually, this is life-changing for you and for me, you know? So this provides the return that we're looking for. And it becomes really difficult when you're on that journey to make that decision around actually like, when is enough and it's a very personal 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 choice so those four things like there is a lot buzzing through my head i'm just going to try and convey into one a couple of sentences so those four things are the founding team do do you believe the founding team i guess is kind of what we're saying right do you feel like these are people that are going to be able to deliver are they gonna do you trust them and in the can they sell are they are they able to convince you and others to join in this decision because if they if they're struggling to recruit people if they're struggling to get other investors if they're struggling to get partners maybe there's something not quite right here and in addition to that a key for me the biggest indicator outside of do i like these people are they trustworthy is product market fit and that, and that sounds like a technical term but really, is anybody buying this? And are the people buying it happy about it? Because that's the number one indicator. Like, if you tell me that your pizza shop is delicious, I'm allowed to dairy, so I can't even eat half the stuff on your menu. But if I'm seeing that, that's Adam who was here yesterday, and he's here again, buying a number five, and he's going to be back on Friday, buying a number six and the number five. That's all I need. I only need four or five Adams to, to come in while I'm there for me to be like, okay, there's something happening here. I don't really know what it is, but there's some consistency in people liking what's happening over here. It's, it's really, really that simple for me. And then Andy disagrees a little bit with the total addressable market thing. How big is the, is the audience for this product? And I, I get that. But the reality of it is, is if you're business only solves a problem for a small group of society and we've spoken about this when we're talking about black businesses if your business only serves the black community there's a limit in the uk at least to how many people that is because there's not that many of us but if your business is applicable to all people there's less of a limit on it. And that doesn't mean it's a guaranteed success because, oh yeah, my, my, my customer base is 7 billion people on the planet. No one's customer base. The only person whose customer base is 7 billion on the planet is oxygen. That's it. That's the only, that's the only person that has a total addressable market of all of us. The rest <laughs> of us will have a small group of people who are important to us. And from, a, from an investment standpoint, particularly in the UK, where a lot of companies don't go public, a lot of small companies are just bought by bigger companies. How big of an opportunity is it? So if you're putting down 2,000, 10,000 pounds and the company sells for 200,000, you could have doubled or tripled your money. And that's great. That's a win. Or are you there waiting to, to invest in Facebook from day one, which means you're going to need a lot of money to be able to do it? But your exit means you get 100 million. And it's balancing that equation. But those are the four key elements. And 
Andy, there's something else I would want you to touch out to touch on because the reality of it is we looked at all the things that get us excited. What are all the things that would make you worried about potentially investing in a certain business? Yeah, so there's one called crazyations, and what I'm talking about there is crazy valuations. Okay, so we often sometimes see this. This is an insider tip. Shh, don't share it with no one on equity crowdfunding platforms. And crazy valuations mean actually that this startup that's raising is basically saying that the price to enter into this deal is far beyond what you'd expect at this stage for that startup. So the hard thing for you is how okay, do I Andy, let's that? simplify that just a little bit. To simplify that just a little bit. The valuation is how much the business is worth. Yes. So the business is worth, say, £100,000, but all they have is one customer who paid them £32. So what justifies that valuation? Exactly. So that's what we're talking about here. This business is saying that they're worth this much, but there is like, I'm trying to understand how you got to this number. So, sorry, Andy, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but... No, no, no. You, you summed it up nicely. <laughs> that's exactly, that's a great example. Like this business is worth £100,000 allegedly, because the founder is allegedly saying that, but you've already got one customer. How do you justify that valuation? Oh, based on these other companies, not good enough. So what people don't realize, especially founders, is the market is the market and the market will ultimately decide your valuation because guess what? If any no, no investors investing in, then that valuation hasn't actually been validated by the market. So it's, it's the price that investor actually invests in which really dictates then what your valuation is. So at Backstage Capital, we were investing $100,000 for 5% equity. Therefore, those startups were worth what we call 2 million pre-money. Because if 5% represents $100,000, then 100% represents 2 million, right? So that was that's as simple as it is. The market is the market. The second thing that's really important is what I touched on before around portfolio management and dilution. Like we can easily get excited and say, we just saved 50K specifically for investing in startups, then invest 25K into two startups and that 50K is gone. But actually, if we're really thinking about following in on, on our winners in 15 to 20 months, we should be investing maybe 15K. And actually that remainder, that 35K, we save for follow-on investments in future rounds if any of the startups perform, right? So it's good to, to have that discipline, that financial rigor to really keep the majority of your funds at bay in case any of those startups perform in 15 to 20 months so that you can actually participate in future rounds and you don't get diluted down okay so there's one more thing i kind of want to touch on in that section of because there's going to be a lot of founders who are part-time and by part-time i mean they have a full-time job because mm. the business is going well it's growing but it's not enough to sustain their lifestyle so is that a red flag some people think it is some people think it isn't what is your take on that I think it's really hard to, to raise as a part-time founder because you're competing with other people in the market who are going full-time in trying to compete with you. So if you're putting in half the time, not to say that's half the energy, but just uh, from a probability perspective, they've got more shots on goal than you do because they're, they're working on this full-time, okay? And sometimes it's really hard. I'm from a working-class background. I get it, right? And sometimes you just need to eat a humble pie and get enough customers and income from customers to help you move into that business full time. If you can't grow your business without investment, that is a flag in itself. The investment should accelerate your path, shouldn't stop you. If it stops you, then the type of business you're trying to build, maybe you're not the right person to build it because it becomes really difficult. And I know there's gonna be naysayers that say there's certain industries or certain products such as hardware that is impossible without money because it's so capital intensive, but understand the path that you're going down, right? Mm. And that's, that's, that's the realness to it. So I'll follow up to that. What happens if we've got two founders or maybe a group of founders, maybe there's up to three and one of them is full-time or two out of the three are full-time and someone is part-time. Does that affect, does that, does that give you more confidence? It depends on the results. Like uh, how's customer acquisition going? How's the retention going? How great is the product, right? Because what you're doing really is you're, you're doing a weighted scoring. You're looking across the board and thinking based on all these things that I look at in terms of due diligence, do I think that this is the best team to back? given that I'm looking at 20 other deals this month as well, right? So you have to remember that comparison as well, the fact that I'm not looking at you in isolation. I'm looking at you in comparison always. There's mm. always others that I'm looking at at the same time. And you want to put your best foot forward, like I said, with selling, so that actually you come up on top and you're the one that I, I decide is the best, best deal for me to do.
And that's an interesting angle for the budding investors here is that any money that you invest into any into any one business is money that you can't invest in another business. So Absolutely. it's important that you keep a pipeline of, of businesses. So, so you need to be getting 10, 20, 30 different opportunities on a monthly basis because you need something to compare this to because you could get one good idea and think, this is amazing. This, this is the one that's going to be everything. But you've only seen one. Once you've seen maybe 10 or 20 that month, it's like, ah, okay, how does this compare to this? How does this compare to that? And you can make a better decision based on how you want to invest your money because the core of it is, is that once that money is invested, if it works or doesn't work, it's money that you can't then take to another opportunity. Yeah, that's why you need to to write it off, roll up your sleeves and just go to work. There you go. So in this half of the episode, we have gone through quite a few bits. So we broke down the process of actually investing in a business. So it starts with research as everything investing does, as most things personal finance does. And that's taking stock of yourself. Are you ready to invest? Why would someone want you to invest? And does this business have an interest in you investing? Because sometimes you can turn up with a bag full of money that nobody wants, no matter how much it is, no matter how cool you are. Some, they, may, they might just not want you to invest. The other thing is that after that research, you have an initial meeting. This is where you're feeling out the founders, the, the person you're talking to. Is this someone that you believe will deliver successfully on this? Do they give you, did they give you the right sort of vibes, basically? Then there's other follow-up meetings where... This is more information. You're meeting more people in the team. Maybe you're going to the office to have this conversation. Maybe you're meeting some of the investors, some of their customers, just to get a feel for what's really, really happening here. And the next step is where you take the due diligence up to a next level. It's the due diligence stage. So you ask for access to to some of their records and data so you can really see how well is this business performing? Where do I see it going? Are there any risk areas? Do I need to ask any more questions? And the last but not least, if you're happy with all of that, that's when you get the checkbook out, well, almost. You need to start negotiating. You need to negotiate, get the term sheet ready, and have a conversation based on that to drop a contract. This is where you start looking at shareholder agreements and other legally binding documents. Just to be clear, the term sheet is not a legally binding document. You, if you're investing and someone gives you a term sheet, you have not committed to invest. It is just the beginning of a conversation. So, for example, it's like an auction guide price. This is roughly what we think this place is going to go for. If you're interested in this property, this is, this is what it would look like. If you're interested in investing in this business, this is round about the region you need to be in. If that's not okay for you, no commitment on either side. After that, we spoke about what happens when you start investing. After you put the money in, you usually go to work. And I recommend personally that most of the people listening to this should be active investors because number one, you want to learn. Number two, you want to protect your investment by keeping an eye on it. And number three, if you want to do this long term, it's better to learn early than to start putting more and more money in and then have to learn some harsh lessons down the line. So active investors are usually the best route for new investors. One thing I want to touch on actually that you just touched on is that um, I should have said this earlier, but um, uh, active um, the lead investor usually sets the, the, the the terms for the round, right? So the lead investor is the one that actually sets the terms in the term sheets that we're all agreeing to or negotiating with initially, okay? And it's really important because you don't want to become a lead investor until you have more experience under your belt. So you're likely going to be following into deals that a lead investor has set the terms for. Okay, so it's really important to understand actually where the term sheet derives from, right? So it's the legal team from the lead investor that sets the terms for the round. Okay, so just to continue on from that, lead investor sets the terms for the round and then... Other things that you should be looking at to get you excited about investment potentially are the founding team. Do you believe them? The product market fit, are customers buying this? The ability of the founding team to sell, can they attract people to the business, whether they're customers, investors, or or partners? And lastly, how big is the opportunity? How big do you think this company could be? How many potential customers are there? And what does that mean to your return on investment? And last but not least, some things to watch out for. We're going to go through them super quickly. Crazy valuations, as in, is it very expensive to buy into this investment? Dilution. Are you one of a high number of investors, which you can end up being on a crowdfunding platform, which means that you don't own a meaningful amount in the business for you to actually get a decent return on your money? And then looking at the founding team, 
are they full-time, part-time? And how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? The vast majority of us will be super comfortable with full-time, in part because it shows that they're doing enough business to pay for, for the lifestyles of the founders, or the founders have sold everything that they have to make sure they can afford to work on this for the next couple of years without being paid. Or if you're part-time, it raises more questions about your commitment and the, and the viability of this business if it's not able to pay one person's salary. So again, tons of value in this half of the episode from Andy, but after the break, we are going to go over the quick tip and the next steps that all of you need to go through if you want to start investing in startups and start making some money, start getting those returns, start getting the experience of being in the game rather than watching it from the sidelines. See you after the break. If you have any questions or dilemmas that you'd like to have featured on our podcast or on our YouTube channel, go to blackmillennialmoney.com, click the contact page and send it to us. Names will be changed or kept anonymous unless you say otherwise. We are back in this Invest Money episode of Black Millennial Money. We have Andy Ayim in the house and we are talking about how to invest in startups. And for the quick tip this week, Andy, what should the people be knowing? What should they be doing? My quick tip for this week is that people should look at the cap table. Ask the founders to share their cap table with you. They should. Startups should be sharing their cap table with you. And when you look at a cap table, understand how much equity has been given away already to existing investors and what other investors are coming into the round and what equity they're getting as well. Because it's important for you to understand if there's too many investors already on the cap table. Okay, so too many investors can mean there's not that much to go around. Also, sometimes, and you may have seen this if you watch Dragon's Den, where someone is raising money, but someone else got 10% and you're getting 2%, but you're paying the same price. Why? I want, I want the same. So this is how you find out those little nuances. And also, it can be an indicator of who else thinks this is a good idea. If you right. know that there's some smart people investing, some interesting people investing, some people who have been around the block a little bit, that could be a good indication as to whether or not you should put the money in. If it's a list of people who have never made any money investing, maybe you don't want to join that kind of list. Could be good for relationships too, if there's new investors that you hadn't met before. Exactly that. So on to the next steps. What are the three things that everyone listening to this episode right now should do? The second they take out their headphones, they stop the car to get involved in investing in startups. Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer in that, you know, we measure our life in decades and not days. And this life is about a game of inches, which requires patience. So I want everyone and I urge everyone to play the long game. And I know this is going to sound counterintuitive to this whole episode, but don't get started with investing into startups. Start by building a, a diversified portfolio. You know, have you got your emergency fund in place like Joseph touched on earlier? You know, have you got your, your debts all paid off? Have you got the savings? Have you got maybe the bonds for you? Maybe the property investments, maybe the, the public stocks and shares. So you need to work yourself, what I say, up the risk ladder, right? And make sure you've got the, 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 the important things set first. Have you got the life insurances, the trusts, right? Make the, put the important things first. And then when you get to a level where you can afford to lose maybe 5% of your net worth and take these risks in investing into startups, then you do it because you have to treat it like a sunk cost and assume that you're not going to get anything, any money back, but go on this, this great experience with these startups. And you don't know how that's really going to turn out and whether it will actually give you a return. So play the long game. And the second step. At the Angel Investing School, we developed um, AIS Dictionary and it's got 100 free startup and investing terms with examples of what they actually mean in practice. You can find it for free on the angelinvestingschool.com. It's not a sell, it's completely free, but it's really helpful for just demystifying the language in this space because language can sometimes serve as a barrier into industries. We see it in, in healthcare, we see it with lawyers. So just go and learn those key terms so you can really articulate and understand when speaking to startups and other investors. Okay, and just a final next step for everyone. And it's, it's an interesting next step for me because it almost takes you right back to the beginning. So what's the third thing? Invest in yourself, right? So there's a great book out there called Venture Deals. It's widely renowned in the venture capital and angel investing space. It is by an American author, but the, the lessons are widely applicable. Okay, so Venture Deals is a great 
Investment is a great book. Feed Your Curiosity. If you're not that interested in reading the book, it might be a sign that this might not be the asset class for you as well. So those are the three next steps. So start off by playing the long game. Make sure you're financially positioned to be investing in what is a high risk investment. It is a very, very high risk investment to invest in startups. 95% of all businesses failed. If I told you to give me £100, there was a 95% chance I wouldn't give it back. Would you give it to me? There we go. The second thing is downloading the angel investing dictionary from the angelinvestingschool.com is a very, very useful resource for you to get to know the terms, for you to get to know the language of investing in businesses, the investing in startups. Because we said a bunch of different things in this episode, words like IP, which means intellectual property, valuation, which means how much you're going to pay. And a bunch of examples of that for you to really, really know what it is that you're reading and get familiar with the language of investing in small businesses or growing businesses. And lastly, get the book venture deals we're going to link to it below so you can actually go and start learning get involved in this and if you don't like reading books get an audio book if you don't like audio books go onto youtube someone may have done a summary on it if you don't like doing any of that go on to blinkist someone may have done a 15 minute write-up of it there is a definitely a way for you to digest this information if you are part if you want to be part of this world and for me i know andy's here and i don't want to just promote andy but if you sign up to the angel investing school you will get access to a ton of information that is going to help you become a great startup investor. And it's not just because Andy's here, it's because I know his level, I know what he delivers, and I've seen some of the things that go on in the conversations around the Angel Investing School, and you will not be disappointed. But that brings us to the end of the episode, Andy, and I want to say thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, thank thank you. you. Second time around, and just as good as the last time. Where can people get a hold of you if they want to stay in touch, if they want to begin to learn more about investing in startups? Sure. So andyayim.com really will route you to wherever you want to go, whether it's to my LinkedIn, to my socials, to the Angel Investing School, to my newsletter. You can find it all on my website, andyayim.com. I just want to put it out there. Sometimes it's hard to know when investors are in or out the money. I am going to invest in hopefully two or three deals this year. So I am interested in seeing deals. So again, you've heard what I look for in this episode. So if you're interested, again, feel free to slide into the DMs and I'll send you my my database for you to submit your pitch deck so that we can start a conversation. Awesome. And as always, with Black Millennial Money, you can find us at blackmillennialmoney.com. Send us your questions. Send us your feedback. Anything that you want to see featured on an episode of Black Millennial Money, head over to blackmillennialmoney.com to do so. On Instagram, you can find us at BMM Global. On Twitter, you can find us at BMM Global Pod. And supporting the Patreon is exactly what you want to be doing because it gets you access to more information that we're going to be adding and building a community around what we're doing on this podcast. If you would like to be part of that journey, head over to blackmillennialmoney.com and join the Patreon there. So next week, we're going to be talking about spending money. And this is going to be a very, very interesting Spend Money episode. So stay tuned and we'll see you then. This is Black Millennial Money. 